All right, we are on page three, the very bottom of page three, really the top of page four of the grid that we handed out last week that's titled The Antichrist in Daniel. And you should have your book, your Bible open to Daniel chapter 11, verse, right around verse 32. So hopefully, hopefully you should find that place and we'll kind of go back and forth between the grid and the Bible. As we're to the series of events, um, just to briefly review the events that have happened, the events are that the fourth kingdom has become a federated world government. It's been divided up into ten quote, kingdoms, you know, regions, that Antichrist has risen to power during the time of those ten kings. He's, um, we saw how he rose from one of the four divisions of the Greek Empire, specifically Syria. He started out small and then grew big and powerful quickly, small in terms of power, power base. And he didn't, he didn't really start out as a king. He didn't look like as a king. He... It looks like he was more of a representative, maybe, of one of the kings. And, uh, but boy, he rose to power in a hurry. And he did it by sneakiness and lies. He, what they call intrigue in the Bible. And he did that at first. But then very rapidly, he began to build a military power base. And it got to the point that he was powerful enough to, to have to be the person who brokers a covenant, a treaty. And that treaty was supposed to continue for seven years. Um, during the first three and a half years, the world is in relative peace and tranquility. Uh, but the Antichrist takes that opportunity to expand eastward and southward. And really, it looks like to kind of gobble up the oil-rich regions of the world. After three and a half years, he reneges on the terms of his peace treaty and immediately the Great Tribulation starts, specifically hard on the saints, on, on the believers who are in the world at that time. But it also ushers in a period that three and a half years is, is hard on everybody in the world. There is warfare everywhere. It's terrible. It gets worse and worse for the saints. The Antichrist stops the sacrifices that are occurring in the temple. He desecrates the temple and sets up the abomination that causes desolation. And Jesus says, when you see that abomination that causes desolation set up, run. Just don't even go back and get your sweater. Just run. Head to the hills. So that's where we left off last week. And so we're picking up the, the prophecy where the Antichrist goes a step further and sets himself up as God. Declares himself God. We saw that in Daniel 8 verse 11 where it was prophesied that he even magnified himself to be equal with the commander of the host, meaning God. Um, verse uh, 25 of chapter 8, he will magnify himself in his heart. He will even oppose the prince of princes. That would be Jesus. And one of the first places that we saw the Antichrist in Daniel chapter 7, verse 8. This horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. Well, that's where we are in in the sequence of events. So let's look at the further illumination that chapter 11 gives us, starting in verse 32. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant But the people who know their God will firmly resist him. So 
he continues his his silver-tongued lies and coaxing and he's been handing out money right and left riches right and left power right and left and he's got a whole bunch of people who are who are his fair-weather friends you know and they have been talked into opposing the Jews and the covenant and the believers and he has rewarded them for doing that. It's kind of like maybe there's a bounty on Jews. There frequently has been in, in, in the past, right? It, you get that flavor from, from some of the preceding verses here where he talks about he, he gives favors to people who will go against the covenant. And here it says he continues to flatter people into opposing the covenant and... He corrupts them. He, ultimately, they go into it thinking, well, I'll, it's just a surface thing. Doesn't matter. You know, I'll just go along with this. And ultimately, he corrupts them. And then you start to see the separation of the believers and the unbelievers in a very real way. Because the believers stand up and fight against the Antichrist. They stand up and declare themselves believers. And God does not rescue them at this point. They are martyred. But they stand up anyway, knowing they will be martyred. And it says, Those who are wise will instruct the many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. And, and my um, translation in the New American Standard says, By smooth words he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly towards the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many. Yet they will fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity, and by plunder for many days. So it's going to be a very bad time. This is the time where you understand some of the preceding prophecies about the wearing down of the saints. Okay. Although that referred to the whole period, it's obviously coming to a climax here. Then in verse 34, when they fall, they will receive a little help, and many who are not sincere will join them. It's kind of like some people will join them just out of disgust over what, how they're being treated. Okay, but they are not really believers in their hearts. Some of the wise will stumble. It says, you know, some of them are going to, it's not stumble in the sense that they're going to be martyred. It's stumble spiritual, in some spiritual sense. You know, they're going to be sucked in. But, but they're going to come out of it because this very next part of this verse is a great promise. If, if I was a wise person during that period of time, I would take comfort from this next phrase. The wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the end of time. You know, God is going to catch them in, this, in their sin, whatever it is, and not let them go. You know, he's going to refine them. For it will still come, the end will still come at the appointed time. This is, I think, the second time in this whole, in this section about the Antichrist that it's talked about the appointed time you know that this is a theme throughout Daniel throughout all the prophecies the next thing that it says let's read verse 36 
The king will do as he pleases. So this is the Antichrist. Now, at this point, he has apparently gained sufficient world power and domination. He can do whatever he wants. Okay. Um, he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods, against our god. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, for what has been determined must take place. So, this is the absolute climax of the Antichrist reign. Okay. This, these few verses describe his pinnacle of power. It also says that he is allowed that power only for a measured num- amount of time, which we knew from our previous study in Daniel. And then it says some things that people just have really argued over for years. It says, verse 37, he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the one, des- one desired by women, nor will he regard any god but will exalt himself above them all. Now, the gods of his fathers is pretty easy to get by. You know, whoever that it happens to be, that's the one that people argue about is the phrase that he shows no regard for the God, for the one desired by women. Now, that is a very different translation than many of your Bibles, because many Bibles will translate that phrase. He will have no regard for the desire of women. Okay. And so you get two different flavors from the two different translations. You could translate it either way. (laughs) Well, it's not clear. Okay, that's why people argue about it. I think it makes more sense to me to say he has no regard for the desire of women. In other words, he can't be tempted by women. Maybe he's homosexual. You know, who knows? I have no clue. It it could also mean that there is a strong woman in his life. You know, a mother figure that he then, you know, goes against. He just doesn't regard or respect her. That the common interpretation by scholars is that it has to do with Jewish women wanting to be the mother of of the Messiah. Very off the wall kind of stuff that if you ever talk to a Jewish woman, that's not top on her list, you know. So I don't really spend a lot of time on that one. So just put that in the we don't really know what it means file, but to watch for it, because when it happens, we will know it. We will recognize it. It could be also that it was the desires of women. It could be that uh, it's like the Muslim concept of the women not having any authority. or. Oh, exactly. So that's an entirely possible interpretation. So just to, to move forward from there, since we really don't know the answer. We get to the next box, which is box 12 in our grid. And we find that his power, though overwhelming and worldwide, uh, well, at least across the Holy Land and all of the, that, that part that he expanded to in the east and the south, he's challenged. He has to constantly fight battles and wars to maintain his dominance. All right. That's not something we typically think of when we think of the Antichrist. We think of somebody all powerful. Well, he's very human in the sense that he has to constantly fight battles and therefore look at who the God is that he worships. In verse 38, instead of them, as in the God of his fathers, 
He will honor a God of fortresses, a God unknown to his fathers. He will honor with gold and silver and treasures, precious stones, costly gifts. Then it says, he will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign God and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land at a price. So that's just simple statement of fact. Uh, we don't know who the foreign god is, okay. who assists him. Could, we know from Revelation, Satan provides a great deal of his power. But we don't know what exactly they're referring to here in this passage. Very interesting stuff. But he's sticking to his pattern of getting people to follow him by handing out the riches. We, we saw that his god was the god of fortresses. And it made me you know, kind of wonder about whether he builds a nuclear program of his own. And that especially made me wonder, with the help of a foreign power, I wonder if that foreign god could be translated, should be translated foreign power, that perhaps he allies himself with a nuclear power. You know, I'm just thinking kind of what what the scenario could look like because it could look a lot of different things. And I brought you a um, news article from the end of March that was on cnsnews.com called Arab States Go Encouraged to Go Nuclear. And I just took some excerpts out of it. It says, currently no Arab state generates nuclear energy, although Egypt has research reactors and authorities there have for decades spoken about wanting to develop nuclear energy. Egypt joined the Non-Proliferation Treaty in 1981, but is among its most vocal critics. According to the Nuclear Threat Initiative, a private non-proliferation organization, Egypt's research program and activities aimed at developing a nuclear program could provide cover and opportunity for a clandestine nuclear weapons capability. And then here's the kicker. Since we saw last week that the Antichrist rises from it looks like he rises from Syria. Western governments have long been concerned about Syria's nuclear ambitions. Also a non-proliferation treaty signatory, Syria has a nuclear research center and has had long-standing agreements with Russia on nuclear energy cooperation. Broader access to foreign expertise provides opportunities to expand its indigenous capabilities and we are monitoring Syrian nuclear intentions with concern, the CIA said in an unclassified 2003 report to Congress. So these are just some of the little threads that you see out in the news to watch. They may not coalesce into, you know, the end time, but these are the kinds of things to watch and evaluate in terms of what, what you now know about the end time. So then, verse 40, the king of the south and the king of the north. So there are apparently other kings still in this ten federated government because we know that he only uprooted three of the ten kings. So there are still seven other kings out there. Then it says, at the time of the end. So now we're coming to the appointed time of the end. This is like just before Christ comes the second time. This is the end of the seven years, the end of the, of the Great Tribulation. Now we're talking what happens at the very, very, very end. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle, and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. 
He will invade many countries. This is the Antichrist. will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt with the Libyans and Nubians in submission. But reports from the east and the north will alarm him, and he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. So this describes the north, the south rising up against him. He is, is somewhere presumably to the east of the Holy Land, okay, because it says he invades the Holy Land. Many countries fall, but there are three that are rescued, and it doesn't say who rescues them. There is no explanation at all about who rescues those three countries, but it's very interesting which three they are. The three are Edom, Moab, and Ammon. All three of those nations have their roots in strife within the family of Israel. The first one is Edom. That's the area southwest and southeast of the Dead Sea. So if you go down to the bottom of the sea on your um, map, it's kind of that little U-shape down there, okay, underneath it. Edom is the land of Esau, who was the twin, right, of Jacob. And Esau was really the older twin. He, he was born first. He, he, he was actually, you know, stuck his foot out first and then went back in the womb and Jacob came out. And so as the younger, Jacob was counted the younger son, he ended up cheating Esau out of Esau's inheritance. Esau was mad at him forever. And his, the land of Esau is Edom. The, the name means red partly because of the red um, rock down there, the red cliffs that are down in that part of the world, but also because Esau was a redhead. He was like a very hairy, very noted for his hairiness, and his, his nickname was basically red. But it has always been a source of strife and enmity with Israel, but they've never been allowed to conquer them. They're relatives, you know, they're cousins. The next two are Moab and Ammon. There is a story in the Old Testament that is usually skipped over in Bible school. And for obvious reasons when you know it. But after the fall of Sodom and Gomorrah, when Lot fled with his daughters and his wife was turned to salt. So it was just Lot and his daughters. They lived in a cave out there in the desert. And his daughters one day said, you know what? We're never going to have kids. There aren't anybody out here. Mm -hmm. And so they got Lot drunk and went in and had relations with him. In order to continue the line. God was not happy with this. <laughs> God was not happy with this at all. And, but out of them, from one of them, came the Moabites, the land, who settled the land of Moab. That was the eldest daughter. And the second, from, the second, from the younger daughter came the Ammonites, who settled Ammon. Moab is the area directly east of the Dead Sea, and Ammon is a small area northeast of the Dead Sea. Now look at your map. What country is, are all of these geographies? What country do you see to the 
directly east of the Dead Sea, small area northeast of the Dead Sea, and the area southeast of the Dead Sea, and a little bit southwest. Jordan. Jordan. It's Jordan. Jordan is rescued. That is Jordan. And in fact, what's the name of their capital? Amman. Amman. That is the name. That is Amman. That is the Ammonites. That is the area. That's the same word. That's who that is. So for some reason, somebody rescues Jordan from the Antichrist in this last war. Then God comes into the picture. What happens is, in verse 45, the Antichrist pitches his royal tents between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. Okay, so he's in the beautiful land. He's pitched his, you know, military tent, so as he's on a military campaign, right there in between the sea and the, and the, and the holy mountain. Yet, he will come to his end and no one will help him. And thus we get to the part 13, where the Antichrist is going to be destroyed by the judgment of the Ancient of Days and the court that sits at the second coming of Christ. We know from, verse, from chapter 2 of Daniel that Christ is who destroys the, the Antichrist and all of the nations represented by this world federation because he was the stone not cut from human hands okay, that pulverized the, the statue. Daniel chapter 9 verse 27 prophesies a complete destruction of the Antichrist, one that is decreed and poured out on the one who makes desolate. In chapter 7, verse, several verses says, and these are all on your grid, I kept looking until the beast was slain, that's the, the, um, the beast is that fourth kingdom, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. I kept looking until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints. Okay, so there is a judging. The court will sit for judgment and his dominion, this is the Antichrist, dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Finally, in chapter 8, verse 25, he will be broken without human agency. All of these clearly referring to the utter and complete destruction of the Antichrist. Now, chapter 12 tells us how that works. Look at verse 1. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. And we read some of the prophecies in uh, books in some of our earlier lessons about how the day of the Lord is going to come and it's going to be cataclysmic. It will be a day like no other. There will be light when there's supposed to be darkness, darkness when there's supposed to be light. Mountains will divide. Valleys will be created, you know, unnaturally or supernaturally. It will be so bad. Men will flee to the caves. And I'm paraphrasing here from, from from those Bible verses that men will flee to the caves, cover their eyes and say, just let us die now. Okay, just just let us die now. We just can't take it anymore. And at that moment, when it looks the blackest, God comes and saves the holy people. It is amazing. And then after that happens, there will be a period of resurrection and judgment. Look at verse two of chapter 12. 
Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. Some to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So here we have a clear prophecy of a resurrection occurring. And um, we will find out the timing of that resurrection. And there's actually more than one when we study Revelation. But this is just in a nutshell. There's going to be a resurrection of both the good and the bad. And they're going to go different places when they're judged. 1 Corinthians 15.20 says Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Okay, He's, he's the first one who was raised in this kind of imperishable body. And he, when he comes, more will be raised. Everybody else will be raised. And, and then the last step is Christ sets up his kingdom here on earth. And that is prophesied throughout uh, the rest of Daniel, in, obviously in chapter 2, where it says the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. It will itself endure forever. And then all over the place in chapter 7, it says, One like a son of man was coming, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And that chapter goes on to say that that occurs, the time arrives when the saints take possession of the kingdom. We, we are going to reign with Christ when he comes. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints. And all dominions will serve and obey him, Jesus. We would expect to see that here in chapter 12. And sure enough, if we look at verse 3, there it is. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens. And those who led many to, lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Then we come to the warning to Daniel. But you, Daniel, close up this and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. New American Standard says, But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. I think some of your versions will say many are, there's a lot of to and froing in, in some of the translations. The word to and fro is used. So it, it's almost like people going this way and that way. And knowledge is increasing, but you don't get a sense of rest or peace or it's, it's more of a frantic activity. And I put, I, I don't think I put on your grid, but in Amos chapter 8, verse 11, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea. And from the north, even to the east, they will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Why won't they find it? Because the time has come and gone. People have made their choice. It's too late. That isn't to say that, you know, there won't be believers all the way up till the millennial kingdom. But I think when you get to that point, the choices have been made. People have been resurrected. There, is a, there will be a judgment at the end of that reign, that thousand-year reign on earth. We're going to read all about that in Revelation. 
by the time people figure this out, they've killed the saints. They've gotten rid of everybody. Who knows? And the world is in such turmoil and up physical upheaval. There is no provision for Bible class. You know, there's a lot to ponder over. And I don't pretend to know all the answers to why God says they won't find it. But that's promised. And that seems to be the language is very, very similar here to what it's talking about. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. It doesn't say knowledge got increased, but it's, that's what they're trying to do. Well, you know, the Antichrist is supposed to get rid of Christians. And so the literature and everything that goes with it is going to be something he'll get rid of, too. I'm quite exactly. Oh, yeah. I'm sure it will be illegal to have a Bible. Yeah. If, if, if your brain is tweaked by some Christian friend who probably may have known the truth and you wanted to go find it somewhere, probably won't be there for you to go find because you didn't look right. before it's gone. Right, right. And this, of course, is talking about the time of the very end. Okay, so it's not like God's going to withhold the world so that we all perish. That is not his goal. Okay, his his will is that none should perish. I put together a timeline because this next part of Daniel is kind of hard to to understand. This is the timeline of the 70th seven in Daniel. And so we're going to just read the rest of chapter 12 together because all this timeline stuff happens at the end of it. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. Because if you can even remember that far back when we started this whole vision, it was a very great angel who looked very much like Jesus. You know, he was so powerful in glory. And he is apparently hovering above the water of the Uli Canal. Was it the Uli he was at? I can't remember even remember what canal he was at. He was whatever. No, he was on the Tigris in this one. Um, but now Daniel looks up and there's two more angels, one on each bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river lifted his right hand and his left hand toward heaven. And I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, it will be for a time Times and half a time. That's our classic three and a half years. When the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, my Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? And he replied, go your way, Daniel, because the words are closed up and sealed until the end of time. Many will be purified, made spotless, and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. So he's telling Daniel, you know, this is all I'm going to tell you. He's telling him, it really isn't for you anyway. I just want you to write it down and make it available till the end of time. There's something about that that's always confused me, though. 
What is it they would tell him to seal up? I mean, he's given us the prophecy, but twice they tell him to seal it up, and it's not going to be available. What, what, I, what I think that means is Daniel is to stop striving for understanding and simply to write it down. The words are to be written down. The understanding of the words is sealed up until the right, till the time comes when it's needed. How recent is our new, it seemed to me, a new desire to study Revelation? Mm-hmm. Because as a child and as a younger person, people didn't seem to really, they pretty much ignored Revelations. It was like, I know there's, it's there for some reason, but beats the heck out of me what it is. So mm-hmm. let's just, you know, they just kind of skip it. But now then, mm-hmm. it's a completely different story. There's a whole new desire to study and learn mm-hmm. by Christians. Mm-hmm. But I think yeah. that's very interesting. It and is. I think that for one thing, the new interest in it is because we're beginning to see these things fall in place. Mm-hmm. And as each little cog goes into place, we go, we go, oh my gosh, didn't Revelation say something? But you know what? It's really cool is that at the end of Daniel, it tells him to seal up this prophecy. When we start Revelation, it talks about the unsealing of the prophecy. You know, it, it's like the, the time has come. They go together and we're going to find out kind of the sister information to what's here. You know, so it's very, very cool. Let's look at this timeline real quick. Try to figure out what in the heck are they talking about, about the 1,290 days and the 1,335 days. <laughs> First off, the timeline, the, the black line is the seven years. It starts with the covenant of the many. Halfway through, you have the beginning of the great tribulation and the stopping of the daily sacrifices and the setting up of the abomination that causes desolation, right? Then, down at the bottom, we've got some timelines for you, some just days, chunks of days. So that first segment we know is three and a half prophetic years. So if you use a 30-day month, that's 1,260 days. Okay? We know that it's another 1,260 days till Christ comes because we know the second coming of Christ is what terminates the seven years. Okay? That is, and I've shown in a box immediately below those, the 70th week. Okay? It's, it's that seven years is the 70th week. And from Daniel 9:24, which is the verse that immediately under the box that says 70th week, the 77s were decreed for the Jews in Jerusalem for the following purposes. The transgression will be finished. Sin will be ended. Iniquity will be atoned for. Everlasting righteousness will be brought in. Vision and prophecy will be sealed up. The most holy place will be anointed. So that all has happened as of this end point, okay? Then we have the 2300-day evenings and mornings that we saw in um, Daniel chapter 8. And during that 2300 evenings and mornings, the Antichrist tramples some of the host of heaven He magnifies himself as God. He stops the daily sacrifices. He throws down and tramples the holy sanctuary. He flings truth to the ground. He does his own will and prospers. The abomination that causes desolation is set up. 
And it says in chapter 8 that that period, that 2300 days, ends when the holy place is properly restored. So let's just keep working down the page. We've got 1290 days. Restored meaning Christ's return? Well, no, I think it's actually restoring of the holy pl- of okay, the sanctuary right. from it being trampled okay, and okay. desecrated. Okay. I think we touched in Ezekiel about there being another temple that okay that gets set up. Okay. The 1290 days that's referred to here in Daniel chapter 12, it says that 1290 days starts from the time the daily sacrifices stop and the abomination that causes desolation is set up. So that's that midpoint, right? You see the the little box? Well, 1290 days is longer than 1260. It extends beyond the second coming of Christ. So if you put those two prophecies together about the 2300 days and the 1290 days, in Daniel chapter 12, it doesn't say what causes the end of the 1290 days. I'm assuming by coupling those two prophecies together that the end is the date at which the holy place is restored. Okay. I don't have anything to prove that. You can circle that and say, guesswork. <laughs> okay. That is not necessary. You know, I, can't, I couldn't say scripture definitively says that, but that's what I think is happening. I think that Christ comes and then there's a period of time while the holy place is restored. Okay. Because physical law doesn't stop when Christ comes. Heaven is not coming to earth. In the sense that earth does not become heaven at that point. This is not the new earth and the new heaven. It's the old earth. And so we still have physical laws. Christ is just coming to reign. Okay. So things aren't going to just like blinkity blinkity blink wiggle your nose happen. There's going to be regular building and, you know, construction and things that would normally happen. So it makes sense there's a period of time during which the holy place is restored. If you then say, well, that's, that gives us the terminus of the 2300 days or evenings and mornings, you back that up, there's 250 days at the beginning of the seven-year period that are unaccounted for. Okay. I have no explanation for what event might have caused the 2300 to start. Okay. So the 2300 is probably the most fluid of all of these bars. It, it didn't give us a beginning. It gave us an end. All right. It said when the holy place is properly restored. If you backed that up and said that that happened at the, miraculously at the second coming of Christ, you still have a, no better explanation for the gap at the beginning of the seven years. Okay. It just becomes 220 days instead of 250 days. So that's why I kind of think it, it belongs here at the end of the 1290. Then the last one is the 1335 days that Daniel chapter 12 verse 12 says there is a blessing for him who attains the end of this period. I am assuming the 1335 starts counting at the same time the 1290 days starts. Okay, that is another assumption. Okay, but I'm assuming that just from the plain English of how the verse reads. It says, from the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1335 days. So it kind of implies it's just a little bit further, right? So I've shown here on your handout, both run from the midpoint of the tribulation. The 1335 days 
doesn't say what the terminus of that is in scripture. But I'm assuming that that's when Christ's thousand year reign starts. Okay. And we know, and that leaves us a 75 day period in the middle. Okay. 30 days and 45 days during which things are kind of set up and organized. Okay. So Christ comes, the world is in absolute shambles. Okay, there's a period of 75 days during which the holy place is restored. And according to, to verses 1 through 3 of Daniel chapter 12, there is a period of resurrection and judgment. So all this is kind of happening during this organizational period. And then Christ's kingdom on earth is established and, he, and the saints are put, you know, we're organized. We're given our kingdoms, okay, and put in place and we begin our rule for a thousand years. So this is, as you can see, kind of some guesswork, and it could happen very differently than that. But best I can tell from putting all the pieces together, that's what the timeline kind of looks like to me. Obviously, there's room for interpretation, so not everybody thinks the same thing. Some people think that 2300 days has nothing to do with the end times, that it has to do with Antiochus Epiphanes, and it was really 1150 days. And, you know, so there's people all over the map on this. Good. Well, hopefully it'll be helpful as we go through Revelation. And I'm also hoping that this grid that we've started will be helpful going through Revelation. I'm really excited about the fact that you were willing to study Daniel first because you will not believe what a difference it will make for you as you go through. At this point, you could read Revelation start to finish and you would be able to recognize pieces you would recognize pieces. I know what that is. I know what that is. I know what that is because you've under you've, you will recognize the imagery of the bear and the leopard and the you know and the lion. You'll recognize the antichrist when you see him. You'll there's just tons of stuff in there that you are now prepared for that will make it much less confusing. Congratulations.